Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment three, John Wartime. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's going to join us to discuss his recently released book entitled Blood in the Cage, Mixed Martial Arts, Pat Militic, and the Furious Rise of the UFC. Stay tuned for that in segment three. In segment four, Tim Grover, a guy I've wanted to get on the show for a while. He's the founder of Attack Athletics. He's a training guru. He's going to join us to discuss how he's helped superstars Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Dwayne Wade reach elite levels. You'll definitely want to stick around for that conversation. That's coming up in segment four. A couple of other notes, visit my Sports Business blog or download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. We've got a Facebook page. Go to my blog at sportsbusinessradio.com. You can link to our new Facebook page. Become one of our friends. I'm joined in studio by Nathan Roach. Nathan, Florida wins the national championship 24-14 over Oklahoma. Good ratings for Fox. I think a lot of people were tuning in and were pretty uh, enthused with the game. Well, I think a lot of people like us want there still to be a playoff system. I know we'll talk about that in headlines. We will. Pac-Man Jones in trouble again. He's caught in the crosslights. And Boston College Athletic Director Gene Filippio. He cut off his nose to spite his face, as my mother would say. We'll talk about that next. That's coming up in headlines. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Don't go anywhere. Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training. Sports business curriculum taught by industry experts and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Boston College fired Jeff Jagodinski on Wednesday, days after he was warned he would be dismissed if he interviewed for the coaching job with the New York Jets. Nathan... The athletic director for Boston College, Gene DiFilippo, I think was totally off base here doing this. This is what I would call cutting off your nose to spite your face. This was a good coach 
And coaches look around for other jobs all the time. Sometimes they just want to get interview experience. So to get rid of your coach because he's out talking to someone else about another job, I think is very short-sighted and, quite frankly, ridiculous. Yeah, but think about it in our profession. If, if our boss finds out that we're out shopping around for other jobs, they're likely to think that we're not going to stick around. They want, a, they want someone that's going to be with the program, and I understand this. Sports is different. Sports is different. Coaches, I mean, look at the Nick Sabans of the world. Uh, these coaches that are vagabonds, Larry Brown, for God's sake, in the NBA, they're always out looking for other opportunities. It's part of the business unless you have a contract that completely forbids you from interviewing with other schools. I think it's ridiculous for you to lose your job. Our next headline, Arizona Diamondbacks general partner and CEO Jeff Morad reached an agreement in principle to acquire the San Diego Padres from John Moores and his wife. For Morad, who is... Since resigned from the D-backs, the move showcases his desire to move back to Southern California. Uh, interestingly enough, MLB sources say that he'll probably pay about $400 million for the Padres, one of the smaller market teams, even though San Diego is not a small market. Uh, Moore's paid $80 million for the team back in December of 1994. It'll be interesting to see what Morad does with the Padres. Did a great job with the D-backs, but... The Padres have had a lot of challenges with being able to pay people. They just lost Trevor Hoffman, their longtime closer this week, and Jake Peavy's been on the trading block, their Cy Young award-winning pitcher, because they don't have a big payroll. Well, and what's amazing about this is we talk so much about big market teams like the Chicago Cubs going for over a billion dollars, possibly, and now we're talking about $400 million. That just seems like a huge difference in chunk of change. Our next headline, the Cleveland Browns have agreed to hire former New York Jets head coach Eric Mangini as their head coach. Mangini fired last week by the Jets, agreed to a four-year deal. This is interesting, Nathan, because Mangini used to be the ball boy for the Cleveland Browns. Now he's their head coach. What a a rags-to-riches story. I'm surprised Mangini got another job so quickly. I think it says a lot about Randy Lerner, the owner of the Browns, not saying that's a good thing. I'm surprised that a guy who kind of broke the coach's code by ratting out Bill Belichick and the Patriots and Spygate, he was able to find a job again this quickly. I thought maybe he would have been blacklisted, but obviously he wasn't. See, but I love this story. Like you just mentioned, I love the rags to riches. I love hearing about kids who have been with the team and worked their way up to be the president, the owner of the team. So I think it's great. We'll just see if he can get it done on the field. Well, the one thing I will say about Mangini is he's a strict disciplinarian, and the Browns need someone in that mold to come in and turn things around. So that's probably what Lerner's looking for. Our next headline... Fox did very well this week with TV ratings both for the Fiesta Bowl and for the National Championship game. They earned an 11.6 rating for the Texas-Ohio State Tostitos Fiesta Bowl, marking the network's best rating ever for a BCS game other than the National Championship game. And then the National Championship game won by Florida against Oklahoma. That also had strong ratings. So if you're Fox, you're losing your contract in a few years, but you're very pleased that lots of people tuned in to watch these two games. And they had other games as well, but these two games really stood out amongst all the BCS games Well, yeah, and it just goes on to say the playoff. And we were talking earlier this week about whether or not McCoy had won the Heisman. I mean, these should be determined by a playoff system. I think that there were definitely teams, USC being one of them, that should have had a chance at this national title, and they didn't get it. Totally agree. We need a 16-team playoff. Please, somebody get that solved quickly. All right. Our old friend Pac-Man Jones is back in the news this week. He's caught in the crosslights. 
for an in-depth analysis of the week's PR nightmare, Sports Business Radio presents Caught in the Crosslights. The Dallas Cowboys have released Adam Pacman Jones after the team learned of new allegations against the troubled cornerback from his time with the Tennessee Titans. The move can't be made official until February 9th, no, though. Three Atlanta-area men have alleged that Jones arranged for someone to shoot at them. Two months after the football player was suspended by NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell in 2007. The June 2007 shooting occurred outside a suburban Atlanta strip club. Pac-Man said this week he's planning on suing ESPN after they broke the news. Then he went on to tell the Dallas Morning News, and I quote, I love me some me. I love me some me. I gotta tell you, I, that is the second best quote from an athlete that I've heard in the last decade. The first best quote. Rashid Wallace, CTC, cut the check, baby. Jerry Jones made a big mistake here. He didn't do his homework. How can you not know that this investigation was ongoing and that things like this were going when you traded for a player that was already suspended? Pac-Man Jones, his days in the NFL are done. Goodell will not let him back in the league, and no owner would touch this guy, Nathan. Well, and I disagree with you. I think he'll be back in the league, and I'll give you one example. Ricky Williams has been given chance after chance after chance. Pac-Man Jones will play for another team. I will guarantee everybody listening to this show right now, Pac-Man Jones has played his last game in the NFL. Guarantee it. All right, coming up next, John Wartime, senior writer from Sports Illustrated, is going to join us to talk about his new book, detailing the MMA and the UFC. And then after that, Tim Grover, training guru to Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Dwayne Wade, amongst others. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. I'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is John Wartime. He is the senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's joined us on this show many times before, one of my favorite writers. John, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us. You too. Pleasure. So you're the author of a new book. It's called Blood in the Cage. It's about mixed martial arts and the UFC uh, you can find the book in bookstores now and on Amazon.com. Tell us a little bit about how you were inspired to write this book. This is kind of, I've known you for a while, and uh, if you would have told me, hey, John's going to write a book on MMA and UFC, I probably wouldn't have put those two together. <laughs> not my imposing physical presence. <laughs> not, um, not really. No, it, it, I mean, you know, I'm kind of as surprised as anyone. I, um, <laughs> I mean, I guess the, the way this started is I, I did this, uh, you know, you, you sort of seen the, I mean, you follow sports business and you sort of see these 
statistics and you see some of these demographic studies. And about two years ago, I went to my editors and I just said, look, I don't know anything about this sport, um, but you can't ignore some of these numbers. Let me, you know, spend a little time and try and figure out what's going on here. And I mean, I knew I knew nothing about this. I mean, there's some people that have been following this sport for a long time and seen it grow, but I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm pretty new to the party here. But I, I did this for Sports Illustrated, and I came away thinking, like, this is actually uh, kind of an interesting phenomenon, and it wasn't at all what I expected. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's two guys fighting in a cage. I mean, I realize it's, it's not for everyone, and, you know, do, do I want my son to be a cage fighter? Probably not, but... I just came away kind of fascinated by the whole, you know, by the whole phenomenon and by the athletes and by the guys I met. And I wrote the story and sort of figured there was a lot more there that I couldn't get in. Why not try to, you know, spin it out into a book? Yeah, I mean, I remember it was a cover story for Sports Illustrated. It got a lot of uh, feedback and a lot of buzz. Um, Who did you follow around to write this book? How did you gather your information? Well, no, that's that's a good. I mean, one thing about this sport that I, I quickly realized is that the the cast of characters changes real fast. I mean, a guy a guy's on top of the world and he's a champion, and he loses, you know, he loses two fights. He's basically out of the organization. Wow. So, I mean, p- part of the book is just trying to explain what this is tapping into and why this has sort of made the splash it has. I I base the book on a, on a fighting camp in uh, in Iowa. A guy that used to be one of the early champions runs it, uh, Pat Militich, and it was a good. It was just kind of sort of a good point of entry to talk about you know what kind of a guy would go into this sport and what the life of a fighter's like. But it, it is tough because uh, you know you know today's star is tomorrow's bum. So if I if I had based this on one of the fighters that was hot when I started this thing, you know, 18 months ago. I could have a book about a guy that wasn't even fighting today. You know, the thing that's interesting to me is so many people have compared MMA to boxing, and they go, which is going to be more sustainable over the long haul? We've talked about the decline of boxing. But I'll tell you this, I don't see any MMA fighters getting, you know, $30 million for a fight like some of the boxers do. So, you know, from that standpoint, there doesn't seem to be the superstars in MMA that we may find in boxing am i wrong on that or am i uh, seeing that correctly no you, you know what it is is that the structure is so completely different that these boxers are basically individual contractors and you've got i mean i think this is what killed boxing you've got all these different organizations and promoters what what goes on with the ufc is that it's one organization it's like joining a league you, you have a contract to fight and if you and i are part of the organization you know we we do what we're told and we have our own contract these cards make insane amounts of money. I mean, hundreds of thousands of pay-per-views at, at you know, a 500,000 pay-per-view is nothing at 50 bucks a pop. And, you know, they're selling out all these arenas and the fighters aren't making nearly what boxers are making. But in terms of popularity, um, you know, the, the numbers are just as big. It's just going to the organization and not to the fighters. I mean, it's a real issue that there's no competing league. So, it's not like these fighters can go next door and get a better deal, but you'll have guys that'll fill an arena. I mean, a, you know, a fleet center in Boston or target center in Minneapolis. I mean, just fill, fill a 20,000 seat arena and do half a million pay-per-view buys and fight on a main event and walk away with $32,000. Is MMA, so, so think, is it a regional yeah. thing? Is it, is it something where there's hot spots around the country where people are really into it and in other spots of the country, they don't really know that much of it about it? 
Yeah, you, you know, it's not sanctioned in every state. So, I mean, you you couldn't hold a card in New York. I don't know about or or you know, actually, Oregon's a pretty big. Uh, oh yeah, it's big you know, here. Portland area is a huge hotspot, but you know, you couldn't hold a card in um, in New York, for instance. It's it's a sports not sanctioned there, but it's you know, it's 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 based in Vegas, but it's it's definitely uh, you know, it's it's big in the Midwest. It's big. Um, it's big in Minnesota. It's big. It's it's real big in the Pacific Northwest too. Um, you know, Miami, LA, they're, they're definitely, it's not like NASCAR where it's sort of constricted to one region, but in some states it's not even, you know, you couldn't even hold a card if you wanted to. TV, like you said, is so important. It's really the lifeblood of any league or sport. Uh, is MMA only available on pay-per-view, or is this going to be something, you know, I know that we saw it on CBS for a while, and then it died out and was canceled. Are we going to see an HBO, a Showtime, an ESPN Someone like that pick this up and make it so it appeals to a more broad audience. You know what? You've got one dominant organization, UFC, and uh, the difference between UFC and the competitors is, I mean, it's like NFL versus you know NFL Europe or like arena football. You know, NBA. Yeah, I mean, it's just massive. So you've got these other leagues. You know, the organization that's CBS made that agreement with was sort of, you know, I don't want to say fly by night, but it wasn't particularly reputable. And they sort of built the whole league around that guy, Kimbo. Um, and the UFC basically says, look, we can hold 20, 25 cards a year, do half a million pay-per-views every time. We have no incentive to make a deal with HBO. So right now they're the dominant force. They're the major player. And if someone comes along, to compete with them and give them a real run, I think we will be seeing this on network TV, certainly so, you know, on HBO or Showtime. Showtime's already got some, some things in the works, but U, UFC's attitude is basically like, we don't need to uh, we don't need to make a deal with a broadcast partner. We've got our own situation here, so it, it's a weird situation where the sport's growing, but there's really the UFC's done a great job of keeping these competitors away. So the sport's growing; it's huge business. It's all over the internet, but. The fighters aren't particularly well compensated, and you're right. It's not like the kind of thing where you're going to turn on ESPN and you know watch it twice a week. Well, and the other thing I think they have as a real challenge is you know, except for the diehard fans of of MMA and, and UFC, the mainstream sports person doesn't know who these people are. So you know, they haven't transcended sports. You know, I I would bet a lot of people heard of some of these athletes for the first time when they read your story in Sports Illustrated. So. Um, I think that's one of the things that they have as a real challenge is introducing these fighters to the mainstream sports fan. Yeah, I mean, from a sports business perspective, it's really fascinating because I think part of UFC, you know, they can say, yeah, we want this thing to grow and become the new NFL. But, you know, they have an incentive not to get these guys to be too big. Um, I mean, they want people to buy UFC and buy the card, but if you ever had a fighter get huge, I mean, if there were a, you know, a Tiger Woods or this sort of overwhelming Hulk figure, Hogan, right? Yeah. If, they, if there was a, if there was a Hulk Hogan of UFC, it would change the entire economics. That guy would be lured by a rival league and he'd want ownership. Um, you know, the way it is now, people will pretty much buy the card no matter what. Um, so it's really interesting. I mean, in a, in a way they obviously want to grow this, but in a way they also have an incentive not to have these guys get so big that it changes their leverage. The other thing that's interesting is, and the difference between uh, MMA and boxing, and I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, is 
that these fighters fight several times a year. With boxers, they may fight once a year, maybe twice a year. So like you said, you're getting a lot more cards and a lot more pay-per-view opportunities than you get with the superstar boxer. Well, you know, the other thing, too, is these guys are all under contract. So if if you're the champion and I'm the challenger, we're going to fight. I mean, it's not going to go through negotiations. It's not going to be Don King and Bob Arum and posturing. you know, the, the from a fighter, from a fan standpoint, it's great because you see the best matchups and the guys who, uh, you know, I, I may not want to fight you, but if I'm under contract, you know, I don't have a whole lot of choice there. So from from a fan's perspective, it's it's very clean cut. It's not, oh, he's the WBO champion and he'll have to abandon that belt and fight in Germany. I mean, there's none of the nonsense that makes boxing, you know, so hard to stomach. It's it's pretty cut and dry. Who are some of the big names in UFC that uh, if people are listening to this show and they're not that familiar with MMA and UFC, who are some of the big names out there that maybe we should pay attention to? Um, that, you know, ask me now. Don't don't re-air this in six months because it could be a totally different set of answers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, right now the, the big heavyweight champ is this guy Brock Lesnar. Right. Who was a, uh, he's, actually a, he's actually an NCAA wrestling champ, so it's not as though they yanked this guy I mean, he was in WWE, which is probably where he's most famous, but the guy was, uh, you know, a great college wrestler. So it's not as though they just sort of found the first, uh, first uh, you, know, you know, big guy they could get. He's probably, you know, he's the heavyweight champ. You've got a guy, BJ Penn from Hawaii. There's a, he's fighting a French-Canadian, George St. Pierre. I guess there was sort of a pound-for-pound best fighter. It would probably be Anderson Silva, who's a Brazilian. Um, you know, something about this that they're they're it's pretty mixed ethnically and and sort of racially. Um, I, I expected this to be, you know, a, a NASCAR type phenomenon, but it really you sort of look at the the highest ranks of this, and they're African Americans and they're Brazilians and Japanese fighters. It, it's a lot more varied than I think people would suspect. John, uh, since this is a sports business show, how much do you know some of these? I guess elite UFC guys, some of the guys you just mentioned, how much did they make? Uh, over the course of a year? Well, it, it really varies. I mean, the top guys can do quite well. I mean, in, in the millions, and they'll get a percentage of the pay-per-view gate, and there are, all sorts of, there are all sorts of these sort of shadowy bonuses that nobody really knows about. Uh, the, the top guys they take care of, but that next tier, you know, they're, they're guys fighting on undercars for $16,000, and... Uh, there's, there's a pretty steep drop-off. And, again, the U, I mean, you know, it's sort of supply and demand. I mean, the UFC's position on this is, hey, look, if you quit tomorrow, would anybody care? I mean, are you, are you driving any of these pay-per-view numbers? No. People want the UFC. They're not necessarily tuning in to see you. The, the select few champions who people are tuning in to see, those guys are doing fine. But it's really a pretty quick drop-off. I mean, there, there's some pretty high-level successful fighters that won't, you know, make $75,000. So last question, 10 years from now, which is going to be more sustainable, boxing or MMA? Oh, I think MMA. Um, provided nothing stupid happens, provided there's no, you know, horrible death in, in, in fighting, which I, which I don't necessarily think will happen. I mean, that's the other thing about these fights is they end pretty quick. And it's not, I mean, the, what, what's going on in there is brutal, but these are not life you know, it's not as though guys are getting carted out on stretchers. But I, I think boxing's in a world of trouble for, for a number of reasons. And I think UFC is just one of them. But 
this sport, I mean, it's not, it's not just that it's popular and people are buying the pay-per-views. You go to, uh, you know, talk to a college wrestlers or go to these karate dojos and kids are actually doing this. I don't know. You know, I don't know anyone who's uh, taking boxing lessons, but, you know, I walk down the street and I see every, you know, every karate studio in New York has a sign saying we offer MMA, we do mixed martial arts too. And I think, I think that's ultimately as good a barometer as anything that people aren't just into the sport, but they're actually participating. Ah, uh, where is Mr. Miyagi when we need him? Yeah, wax on, wax on. <laughs> All right, John Wartime, how can people find your new book, Blood in the Cage? Uh, it should be it's on Amazon and should be at, uh, at, at retailers near you. All right, everyone go out and buy a copy. That's my direct order to this audience. Go buy a copy and uh, learn more about MMA and UFC. John Wartime, Sports Illustrated senior writer, author of Blood in the Cage. Thanks for joining us on this week's uh, Sports Business Radio. Anytime. Pleasure. Happy New Year. You take care. Thanks, Brian. Take care. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu, and they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Tim Grover. He's the founder of Attack Athletics. Tim has trained some of the most recognizable athletes in the world, including Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Dwayne Wade. His state-of-the-art Attack Athletics facility is located in in Chicago. Tim, thanks for joining us this week on Sports Business Radio. Oh, my pleasure. So, Tim, for people who aren't familiar with you, why don't you start off by explaining to our audience how you started Attack Athletics and what do athletes like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and Dwayne Wade look to you for when they hire you? Well, what we did is our whole business is based on increasing sports performance and injury prevention. So what we do is we take an athlete and we find out where, where, his, uh, where his weaknesses are um, and try to improve those weaknesses and where his strengths are and take his game and increase it to a, uh, into a much higher level. Um, everything we do is based on performance, uh, you know, unlike working with actors and actresses where, you know, you got makeup and you got different lighting that can – show different things and uh you know our our work is is on center stage every single time they these individuals play and there's nothing you can do to mask it so these are elite athletes that are hiring you the best of the best when they walk through your doors can you give us a sample of a a regimen that you would put someone like a michael jordan or a kobe bryant on 
Well, what we do is our first thing is they go through a whole assessment process. You want to make find out uh, where their um, weak links where their weak links are, and makes and start to attack those things first. Because uh, you know, if there's a weak link in the chain, that's the area that has a tendency to break down first. And no matter how good an athlete is, if he, there's something that isn't performing right or not activating right, then he's not able to do his job at 100%. So we put him through a whole different assessment. We have a whole team that works with individuals. A person will come in and he'll see anywhere from four to five different people for the first uh, two days, and uh, they'll give me all the assessments, and I'll sit down from there and and start evaluating it and start putting a program together. Usually what we find out is, you know, an individual is either like real tight in a certain area or they have a muscular uh, imbalance where they're overcompensating on one side or you'll find out that they're they're not uh, using the correct muscles when they run and they jump and, uh, uh, you know, there might be not enough uh, flexibility in the ankles. Uh, they may not even be running with all their toes being uh formulating in the right area. So it, it could be many things, and it's just when you have an athlete that's so elite, in order to show them results, it takes a lot more work and a lot more preparation than just a general individual. If you have uh, Michael Jordan or Dwayne Wade who's already jumping, you know, 38, 40 inches plus, it's harder and a lot more difficult and you really have to fine-tune the workout in order for them to see a gain to go from 40 to 45 to 46 than it is an average individual. You know, how closely do you work with the trainers from the teams? If Again, if Michael Jordan, Dwayne Wade, Kobe Bryant come to you, are you consulting with their team trainers, or are you kind of starting from scratch with them? Oh, no. We, what we do is we definitely consult. We consult with everybody. We consult with the general managers, the head coach, uh, the training staff, the strength and conditioning individuals, and that's one of the reasons our company and myself, we have such a good relationship with these individuals is uh, we work in conjunction with them, not against them. Uh, we, we're like, hey, listen, let us do our job. We'll always keep you updated on what we're doing, and if you have any uh, ideas for us, let us know. They'll come into the facility on a regular basis. They'll check up on the work that we're doing. Uh, we are in constant communications with them during the season. And what we try to do is if you give us an individual and you let us work with them, our job is to send him back to you better so it makes your job easier so you don't have to work as hard as being as a trainer or as a strength and conditioning individual or as a coach because we've done a lot of the work already for you and this is how you, may, then this is how you maintain it. So is a business model – are you being paid by the team, or do the players come to you and say, I'm hiring you out of my own pocket because I see the value of spending my offseason working with you? No, we're, we're hired by the players. We okay. are hired by the players. We are paid by the players uh, in order for us to perform services for those, ind- for those individuals. You know, Tim, it's interesting because so many different teams and the trainers have different philosophies. For example, I know the people down in, in Phoenix pretty well, and mm-hmm. You know, whether it's Shaquille O'Neal or Steve Nash that are going there, they're saying they're doing things in Phoenix that I haven't had done to me anywhere else, and I feel like I'm healthier, I'm prolonging my career, I'm more flexible. Uh, explain to us how there can be such a difference in philosophy between trainers and how you can go to some place and be injury-free, but in other places maybe you have those nagging injuries that keep you off the court. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, 
sometimes an individual goes from one team to another and they they rededicate themselves. So it's not that it's really not the training protocol or anything that's going on. It's like, hey, I'm in a different organization. Uh, I need to, you know, kind of they've traded for me. I need to perform, and they start putting in a little a little extra work. There are different philosophies among individuals. I mean, some. Uh, some trainers and strength and conditioning individuals concentrate strictly on injury prevention. Others concentrate on explosiveness. Others concentrate on flexibility and speed. And that that's an individual's identity to decide on what he wants to do or what the team needs to do. We We take all those components and put them together. And that's what makes us very unique from a lot of individuals is we're just not focusing on a person's stability or his core or their balance. We're concentrating on their uh, – as we increase their flexibility, we're increasing their speed. We're increasing their explosiveness. We're decreasing their chances of getting injury, of getting injured. So, I mean, that, that's why we have numerous individuals on staff, and they all do different things to make sure that individual is seen and touched by everybody and the results are going to be positive in not just one area, in all areas. So if they, when they go to a different team or a different individual, whatever philosophy or model that person has or that organization has, it's already part of our protocol. I'm hearing about many more athletes turning to things like acupuncture and yoga things like that. Uh, what are your thoughts on those practices? Uh, listen, anything to get an edge that works is great, but again, there's no one single piece that's going to get you that edge. It has to be a, you have to add it into the puzzle. I mean, yoga is great for increasing flexibility, but it doesn't do anything to really increase athletic performance. So there. there you got to be real, real. You got to be real, real careful there. If, you, if all you're doing is yoga as part of your program, yeah, okay, you'll increase your flexibility. You'll increase your flexibility, but how does that translate to what you do on the bat, on the basketball court, or on the football field? Are the moves that you're doing in the particular yoga class mimicking what you're going to do out on the field? Uh, on the field, I get people all the time that talk uh, Pilates instructors that come up to me and say, oh, you know, if if you do these exercises, you get these long, lean muscles. <laughs> you know that's just a that that's just a way of selling something. Okay, it, no matter there's many exercises and many ways you can perform things to get long, lean muscles. Pilates is just not the one. How many times a lot of the exercises you do on Pilates are performed on your back? Okay, how many sports do you know where you get to lie down on your back and do your performance? Not many. Exactly, not <laughs> many. But there are certain moves in Pilates that are very beneficial to sports performance. You just have to know what those are and have those tailored towards that individual. And, again, it just can't be the only thing you're going to do all summer. I mean, one important thing is in order to be a better football player, guess what? You've got to practice football. In order to be a better basketball player, you've got to practice basketball. So those are the aspects that help an individual succeed and what they want to do. Because every time you increase a person's athletic performance, whether it's making them faster, making them jump higher, there's another fine skill that also needs to be tuned. And I'll give you a perfect example, okay? If you have an individual and you concentrate on their vertical jump, 
Now, I guess when they start to shoot a jump shot, guess what? They're jumping a little higher than they normally did. The trajectory of the ball is a lot different than it was during how they were accustomed to jumping. Now, you as a trainer, as a coach, need to make those adjustments and make sure the individual practices his jump shot in different areas because now the trajectory of the shot is completely different, and it doesn't take much for the that shot to go one way or the other. My guest is training guru Tim Grover, the founder of Attack Athletics. Tim, I want to talk to you about Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade is uh, someone that I followed very closely this year, and I know he spent a lot of time with you in your gym in Chicago this summer. And Dwayne's a guy who spent most of the last two seasons hurt after being the MVP of the 2006 NBA Finals. And I see what you did with him and his performance in Beijing. He's my vote for NBA MVP right now, what he's doing on the court during the regular season. I want you to tell us a little bit about what you did with Dwayne this offseason because it seems to be working for him real well. Well, what I mean, the first thing we did was uh, I think the best thing that happened was the Miami Heat shut him down towards the end of the season. And the reason that was so beneficial, it gave his body a chance to rest and recover. So when we were able to get a hold of him in uh, early, early May, his body had already gone through the uh, uh, healing process and through a resting process. So, you know, we touched base with uh, Coach Spolstra. We touched base with uh, Jay Sobels, the athletic trainer over there. And uh, they gave me the information of, you know, his injury and what, what he was doing during the off season and what his problems were. And from there, we all got together and put a program together. And Dwayne was a little skeptical just because he had been hurt. And it's the first time he had really, really you know, been really hurt to the point where he couldn't perform. And this, his injury was unique because not only did we have to take care of a lower lower leg injury, meaning the knee, we also had to deal with the shoulder at the, at the same time. And again, going back to what I said earlier, you don't want to strengthen up one area and have another area uh, still be a weak link. Um, I mean, Dwayne came in and he was in, he was in the facility five days a week for at least, I'd say a good four or five hours a day. Now, during what I mean four or five hours a day, He's not working out that whole time. There's a lot of time he's seeing the physical therapist uh, for different uh, uh, muscle balancing activities. He's seeing our neuromuscular muscle uh, muscle activation individual. And then he's also doing work on the basketball courts, uh, refining his skills. And he's also in the weight room doing different strength and conditioning exercises and working on his explosiveness and working on his balance. It was a complete, complete program. I mean, Dwayne would probably see anywhere from four to five different individuals every single day that all have a specialty in one location and in order for him to succeed. We did a lot of uh, hot and cold contrast therapy with him in the pool. Uh, You know, that really helps your muscles recover a lot faster and uh, regenerate the fibers that are in there. So, I mean, it 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 was a very tough, stringent, eight solid weeks that he was with us. And we had a timetable. He stuck to it. He knew what he needed to do. He didn't let anything else distract him. He set his schedule uh, so he could definitely commit to us. And, you know, we got the job done. 
Tim, you know, so much of sports is mental. And I read a quote a few weeks ago in the Washington Post from Dwayne Wade, and he said that your team really helped him push through his mental blocks that he had. Here's a guy who was used to attacking the rim, and uh, his body took a beating, and it, it was almost like after his injuries he became a little bit tentative, but he said that you guys helped push him through some of those mental blocks he had. Maybe you can talk about that, knowing how far to push an athlete so you can help him get through those mental blocks. Well, what we did was we set up different goals and stages for Dwayne. We know how he plays, and, you know, he's very aggressive, whether it's on offensive end, defensive end, attacking the basket. Uh, so what we did was we set goals for him and, and allowed him to see the progress in either the weight room or on the training table before he got himself back on the basketball court. So that made him more comfortable. So we would have him do an exercise and say, hey, Dwayne, we're getting ready to do this, and you, you know, we've worked your way up to this exercise, and he'd do the exercise, and then I would explain to him, hey, this is how this translates to what you do on the basketball court, except here's the difference. The stuff we just did in the weight room, you're actually putting more torque, more pressure on the joint, on your injured areas than you would out on the court so if you can feel comfortable knowing hey nothing's going to break down while you did this exercise the chances of it happening on the basketball court are definitely decreased and I mean I had one point before I cleared Dwayne I had him uh, step on a five-foot box and I had him jump up as high as he could jump and stick a landing and make sure he stuck the landing. So Dwayne, basically, if you take that, was probably with his legs tucked and jumped and that, he was probably jumping off maybe a 10-foot high box. Wow. And, la- and sticking the landing. All right, and once that, that was his final test. Once he was able to do that, he was able to stick the landing, and then after he stuck the landing, take one step forward, which is the correct way you're supposed to uh, uh, land, and once we were able to do that, he knew inside that he was 100% physically ready to go. Interesting. We've got just a few minutes left. I mentioned earlier some of your clients have included Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. You really made your name with, with Michael Jordan. Two competitive guys, and they've been compared to each other in so many different ways. But in your work with them, maybe compare and contrast them a little bit if you would. Well, it, it, it's funny with, you know, the one thing about all the stars, the super, super stars, the one thing that they do, and this was a thing that I think Dwayne finally realized uh, now, is you make all your gains during the off season, but you have to maintain them during the season. And that's one thing that Michael always did. And that's one thing that Kobe has done. And now Dwayne is starting, starting to do that. Is it doesn't make any sense to work so hard during the off season and then not do anything or do a maintenance program during the season, because the next off season, instead of us being able to raise, elevate and raise your game, we're basically starting all over again. And I think that's one of the things. If you see Dwayne, he's so successful this year is because uh, Miami Heat and the training staff and everybody is keeping him on on his regimen. And that's what makes the super superstars extremely special. That's something Michael did. You know, even they would always play all the way until, you know, the end of June. Michael would take a month off, and then we're back at it again. I mean, Kobe is the same way, and that's what separates 
the average individual from an athlete that can dominate on a regular, regular basis. And all and the desire to always get better. And it's funny, the best ones, you know, they say don't look over your shoulder or your back. No, the best ones are always looking over their shoulders and back because they want to see who's behind them, who's trying to catch them, and they need to know, hey, I need to put in this extra work because I want to stay at the top of this mountain. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, just touching on that, I remember, you know, I grew up in the the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird era, and I remember hearing Magic Johnson say, I felt like I had to be in the gym every summer, every day, because I knew Larry was doing the same thing. And if I missed a day, he was a day ahead of me. Last question for you. For the young players coming up, what are some of the most important things they should be doing to take care of their body and their mind, just in a in a general sense? Well, it's, you know, you, uh, there's an old expression, you are what you eat, so you, your nutrition is extremely important, and your rest is very important. I mean, it's funny, all your, you can work as hard as you can in the gym, but it's funny, your results come when you leave the gym. If you put your time in in the gym, when you go home, you rest, you go to sleep, that's when your body is actually making progress. So whatever you do outside the gym is as as important as what you do inside the gym. Well, Tim, this has been an enlightening discussion. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, Go to attackathletics.com or go to sportsbusinessradio.com and look for the link to Tim Grover's website. And, uh, Tim, again, continued success. It's great to finally catch up with you. My pleasure. Take care, everybody. You too. You've been listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm excited about this. ABC has given a six-episode order for a new celebrity take on the sports-themed franchise, Superstars. This according to the Daily Variety this week. In the new show set to run this summer, eight celebrities will be paired with eight male and female pro athletes to compete in various events, including swimming, biking, running, and kayaking. Teams will be eliminated each week until one athlete celebrity pair is crowned the champs. This was one of my favorite shows, Nathan, growing up, seeing boxers and track and field stars and football players and basketball players and baseball players matched against each other in all these different sports, and I think it's really cool that they're bringing this show back. Well, and they're doing a lot of different spins on this, so they have recently with Dancing with the Stars, and they've done some other, like, bros versus pros and that kind of stuff, so... You know, I I, I haven't I, I don't want to date myself, but I have not seen this show before. Oh, go on to YouTube and just put in superstars and it'll be in there. And ABC has the NBA finals too in June, so this will be a 
big springboard for them to promote superstars. All right, lots of thank yous on the show this week. Tim Grover, John Wartime, our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harrison, Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, ProTrade.com, and Evergreen Media Training, a podcast reminder you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. Don't forget, we've got a Facebook page, the Sports Business Radio Facebook page. Find it by signing up at sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm Brian Berger. Have a fantastic week. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com.